You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Art Smart from Who Arted? your guide to quick and easy art history. We're cutting through all that art world jargon that doesn't make sense to anyone because art is for everyone. Welcome to Art Smart. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and today we're going to be focused on block printing. When I think about block printing, my first thought is of the Japanese woodcut prints that were immensely popular not only in Japan during the UKOE period, but around the world. Prints from artists like Katsushika Hokusai inspired a lot of early modern painters in Europe, like Vincent van Gogh. Hokusai was born October or November 1760 in the Katsushika district of Edo. Edo today is known as Tokyo. His name at birth was not Katsushika Hokusai, His childhood name was Takitaro. In Japan at that time, it was fairly common for artists to adopt different names throughout their careers. He started writing and painting at the age of six. By the time he was a teenager, he was showing quite a bit of promise as an artist. At 14, he apprenticed as a woodcarver for woodblock prints. Now, woodblock printing was basically using a block of wood as a stamp. An artist would draw an image on paper, then the drawing would be placed face down onto a block of wood. Essentially, they would do a transfer technique, think gluing the drawing onto the block, and the original drawing would then be destroyed as the paper was wet and peeled away, but the ink would be on the block. From there, a wood carver would get to work carving away to leave the design in raised relief. Ink would be run over the top of the block, then a paper pressed down onto the surface. They didn't use a printing press. People would rub on the back of the paper to make sure every inch of the surface was pressed to the block. For a black and white image, a single block would be used, but for multicolored prints, skilled artisans would have to carve a separate block for each color. They would use registration marks to carefully align the paper for multiple printings. It's difficult work requiring great skill, but also patience and attention to detail. Hokusai spent four years learning the printmaking process as a carver before he joined the studio of Katsukawa Shunsho. While he's best remembered for his landscapes, Hokusai tackled all sorts of subjects. During the Yukioe period, prints were not really high art. 
It was a commercial gig making posters for the new middle class. So in this time, like the 1780s or so, Hokusai was focused a lot on celebrities from the Kabuki theater. Although he also painted other things, he made waterfalls, dragons, you name it. Over his career, Hokusai made paintings and prints, but he also made books, manga, trading cards, puzzles. Some of his prints even seem to have been used in packaging for snacks, but that would come later. In 1793, Shunsho died, and another artist took over the school. Hokusai began studying some Western art when he could get his hands on French and Dutch copper engravings. While Japan was a secluded nation, closed off from the rest of the world at that time, they still had some trade with the Dutch and the Chinese. It's not exactly clear why, some say because of studies at a rival school, but Hokusai was kicked out of the Katsukawa school. He would later say, What really motivated the development of my artistic style was the embarrassment I suffered at Shunko's hands. Shunko being the protege of Shunsho, uh, the artist that Hokusai initially studied under. But it was at this point, after being kicked out of the Katsukawa school, that Hokusai started to move away from figurative work like actors and more towards landscapes. His most famous landscape is, of course, the Great Wave off Kanagawa. Many see this as a quintessential Japanese piece. At first glance, it's almost serene as the mountain stands in the background. The silhouette of the sky and water almost make like a yin-yang sort of a symbol. The mountain, of course, is Mount Fuji. It was part of a series of 36 views of Mount Fuji. In the foreground, though, we see massive waves. The waves are towering over some poor fishermen in their boats. The perspective with Mount Fuji tiny in the distance makes the waves in the foreground appear to tower over the mountain itself. There's a sort of tension there that many see as metaphorical for what's happening in Japan in the 19th century as this artwork was created. Japan had been closed off for 200 years. It was largely happy and prosperous in its seclusion, but the outside world was coming with tremendous force and energy that could be exciting, but also threatening. The piece shows quite the dichotomy, not only in the tranquil mountains standing amid the turbulent waves, but also it's a traditional Japanese woodcut printed with Prussian blue, an import often referred to as Berlin blue at the time. A blue had long been a notoriously difficult and expensive pigment to get. Prussian blue was a synthetic pigment developed in a lab and mass-produced. When it came to Japan, likely through their limited trade with China, people loved it. It was not only a beautiful blue, but it also held up well over time, it was less likely to fade. Many artists, including Hokusai, created monochromatic prints and shades of blue to capitalize on the popularity of the imported color. Ultimately, I think it's the tension that makes this piece so amazing. Hokusai doesn't give us the wave crashing onto the boats. 
He doesn't show us the final impact. He shows us the wave towering over them. It's the potential energy. We all know those fishermen are in a precarious situation, but the great wave gives us the dramatic moment when the wave is at its peak. It's this unstoppable frenzied force of nature juxtaposed with the mountain and the clouds in the sky that seem peaceful and serene, steady off in the distance, no matter what's happening in the world around it. Amazingly, despite the tension, the peril and the promise, the ambivalence and seeming opposite emotions conveyed in this work are in perfect balance. I guess it really is the quintessential Japanese piece. Now, after the break, we'll hear from Speedball Art Products, the leader in inks and printing materials, so we can learn a little bit more about modern printmaking materials and methods. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And so now we're back and I've got David Valier from Speedball Art Products. I am really excited. I've been using Speedball for years and always happy to learn a little bit more about the medium. So thank you very much for taking the time to join me and sharing your insights. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to participate. Okay, so right off the bat, you know, when I think about block printing, whether it's like the Japanese woodcuts or linoleum block, or I mean, it's pretty simple. It's a block, but you've got a bunch of different tools that we can use for carving them up. Can you talk about some of the, the tools that you've got and how those are made? Yeah, so we definitely pride ourselves in being a one-stop shop for, for printmaking and specifically within that for, for block printing. Uh, we make um, some mini presses, we make uh, the brayers, and then one of our uh, tools that is very much part of our heritage are the cutters themselves. And um, from my perspective, those are one of the most interesting uh, manufacturing processes that we have here at Speedball. So in terms of the working end of the cutting tools, it takes several steps uh, to transform what starts as a pretty simple strip of metal and turning it into cutting tools for artists. Uh, it begins with the machine that punches the shape out of a raw strip of metal. And at that point, it's basically a flat shape. Essentially, it goes through processes to be formed or to be more precise, transformed from a 2D shape into a three-dimensional object. And then the final step is to go through a hand grinding uh, of the edges to give it the, the sharpness um, to create uh, what we feel is a world-class cutting blade. It's a really cool process and uh, we love having visitors tour the factory and check it out. So if anyone finds themselves near Statesville, North Carolina, uh, we'd love to have you in and, and do a tour of the factory. So if I'm picturing this correctly, I'm imagining a sheet of metal, you've basically got probably like a die cut or something that that stamps it out, like cuts out the shape. 
and then it's kind of folded and rolled or whatever. Because like when I think of my lino cut tools, it would always be almost like a V shape or something like that that's that's going into it. And then after it's folded and sort of rolled into the form, that's where you've got the grinder that sharpens it. Absolutely, that's a, that's a, that's a great way of putting it. So then, you know, I've got the tools, I've got, I've got a block, I've got my cutter. What are the steps in, in actually like making a print from that? Like how does that happen? So the, the steps to, to making a block print are uh, relatively straightforward. Um, as you probably know, and a lot of your listeners know, it's one of the most popular introductions to printmaking. And it involves uh, choosing your design. And once you uh, choose your design, um, you, there are many ways that you can transfer your design from a piece of paper onto the block itself. Very popular method of this is to um, trace it with a piece of graphite paper uh, underneath your design and it goes onto the block. And uh, from there, that gives you your template, if you will, uh, to carve out the design. Once you have your design carved out of the block, you roll your ink out with most often a brayer and then apply a thin layer of ink onto the carved block. And from there, you transfer the uh, ink from the block onto the paper, which can be done with anything from a, ha- a handheld tool, such as a, the back of a wooden spoon or uh, a brayer, all the way up to a professional grade etching press. Yeah, so we we design it, we carve the block, we roll the ink over the top, and then we press the paper to that block. I don't know why it always seems to come out better if I put my paper on top of the block instead of flipping the stamp down onto the paper. Um, I'm sure there's some sort of physics that's beyond my grasp about, you know, the the linoleum or in an elementary room, maybe a styrofoam just absorbing some of the pressure when we're pressing from the other side. But using a, a baron, I think is what they call it, right? Or even like you said, a spoon to press and create that pressure across the paper does help with the transfer of that ink there. Now, on that topic of ink, I'm gonna say something that is probably going to just make your brain hurt a little bit, make you die inside, but I'm gonna be honest, for the first few years of teaching, I used block printing ink and screen printing ink essentially interchangeably. <laughs> and it, it led to some difficulty getting through the screens and, um, sometimes some stamps that were running all over the place. Can you explain how is block printing ink different? I mean, you got, you're the, you're the ink guy, right? Like what makes that ink different from other inks? Yeah, absolutely. Your experience is is one that we get uh, a lot of, and we really try to educate um, our market on what makes a really good block printing ink because our inks are in fact formulated for the specific needs of block printing. What does that mean? You want an ink that is tacky, not super fluid. We say, listen for, um, listen for that itch, itch, itch. Yeah. Uh, it makes a very distinctive sound when you roll it out. Uh, we say to look for little visual peaks as you roll out your ink. 
Uh, and what that does is it allows it to hold the form of what you've carved, the design that you've carved. It, it'll help you keep a really nice level of detail. So yes, our, our inks are designed to be very tacky and just the right amount of open time. And we have a range within that. Um, our water-soluble inks are excellent for the school market. They dry relatively quickly on up to your more professional user prefers uh, traditional oil-based ink or even we offer a water-miscible oil-based ink that'll have a little bit more extended open time and higher pigmentation. And just to, because I always like to try to cut through the jargon for someone who's not really into um, the ink world and the printmaking world, when you say open time, um, we're talking about like just the dry time, right? The like dry how, time. yeah. Uh, so how long it will dry? An oil-based ink is going to take longer, right? I would presume. I actually, honestly, don't think I actually ever worked with oil-based inks. I've oil paints. I know it's a much longer dry time, and I would assume the same with inks, right? A absolutely. And what we found was, again, as you get to the more professional level, they're going to want that longer open time. At the same time, one of the things that we're very well known for, our heritage is in the water-based inks that can be cleaned up with soap and water. So we're very proud to be able to offer an oil-based ink that is water-miscible, which has a lot of the great properties of your water-soluble inks, but it's permanent and it still cleans up with, with soap and water. And for the traditionalist who just got to have that old school, if you will, traditional oil-based ink, we've, we've got that as well. I, I appreciate it. Um, don't think I can use the oil stuff in my classroom, but I have always had great experience with your water-soluble inks, and, you know, they look great. They hold up really well over time, and they're relatively easy for me to clean up, so appreciate that. Now, we're kind of already starting to shift into a little bit of how we do, how we work with this. Um, and I always like to end with a little bit of practical advice for working with the medium. So now let's say I wanna make a multicolored print. Teaching elementary, what I always do is, I mostly tell my students, don't bother with multicolor. It's gonna be more trouble than it's worth. Or if we're feeling fancy, we will put little dots of ink in a row and do like that ombre or rainbow stripe design, you know, just carefully rolling straight across. But for people who want a multicolored print in that traditional way, you carve multiple stamps, one stamp, one block for each color. How do you get those to line up in the final print? That's right. That's a that's a great question, and there's there's a lot of ways we we call it registration. And one of the most popular ways is to basically take a base level of paper, it can be any type of, of large paper, and use that as your base. And then you make an outline of the piece of paper that you would like to print on, and outline that on your base paper. Then you'll take the size block that you're gonna to wanna to print with obviously multiple times. And you're gonna center your block within the outline of the paper outline that you've previously made. And you're gonna make marks around your block. From there, you put your paper down and you're gonna draw a straight line across the back of your printing paper onto the base paper and do that a couple times to where the lines will then line up. 
and then after you take your first print, the marks on the back of the paper will then line up or register to put them in the same place for the next color of the block to come in the same spot. Perfect. And, you know, as a, an elementary teacher, I'm always looking for little tips and tricks and, and the simplest methods. One thing I have found helpful for a lot of my students is I just put like lines of painter's tape around the table and stuff. And I'm just like, get your paper into there. Or, you know, this week I'm screen printing with all of my students. So I just put a line of tape on the top of the screen. And then I'm just like, line that up with the t-shirt tag and we're good. But the registration, those little marks, just setting, taking a few extra minutes to do that in the beginning makes such a difference. You know, um, carefully setting things up, you know, creates the opportunity for success that everybody needs. Now, unfortunately, we don't always get things perfect. One of the biggest struggles that my students have, and if I'm being honest, and you can probably see in the video conference here with my hands, ink, smudges, and fingerprints happen, you know? Do you have any advice on either how to get good clean prints, avoiding those types of mistakes or if they do happen what should we do about fingerprints and smudges and things around the edges uh the best thing that you can do is to really try to avoid the problem to begin with make sure you keep your work workspace clean and wash your hands and all that sort of stuff uh at the same time uh part of printmaking is is getting inky so it's absolutely going to happen uh, you can use painter's tape to mask off uh, edges and that can be helpful to really keep a clean margin as well. Uh, and if you do get occasional fingerprints around the edges of a paper, just remember blocks can be reused. Uh, this is a medium of multiples and uh, you can always go back for more. Yeah, absolutely. And if all else fails, I always tell my students just crop it because you're bound to have some good uh, success points in any print. Uh, any other tips or tricks that you'd like to share? Well, I guess this is probably not the first time that folks have heard this tip, but it's a great one to always be reminded of, which is when you're doing a block print, uh, your block is going to print in the reverse of how it looks on the block. So I remember back to my first one, it, uh, it had a logo involved and spent an hour carving it. And uh, to my defense, I realized before I printed it that, uh-oh, this is not going to come out right. But it did make for a good uh, desktop button because it shows the right way on the block. Yeah, that is always a painful, painful lesson when you learn it the hard way. Um, I I usually tell my students, don't even try to put text into, into it until at least around third grade. Um, but if you are trying to figure out how to make a design, um, how to how to mirror it and stuff like that. When I was a kid, my teacher always said like, oh, hold a mirror up to it. And it was the most awkward process I have ever dealt with. Holding your paper up to a window allows you to see through to the other side. Or I would just use like a thin sheet of copy paper, draw the design, you know, in pencil, trace over it in marker and then flip it over so I can see the ink that bled through transferred to the other side. It shows me that mirrored image which makes it much easier to um, envision how the reversed image should go. But being mindful of the fact that block printing always comes out as 
if effectively a reflection or a, a mirror image is really, really critical. Um, I've had so many people make beautiful designs of like their name and then they realize it only looks right in the mirror. One of the things that's fascinating to me about printmaking and in this case specific to block printing is, is how many people discover that just the way their mind works, when you talk about a multiple layer print, when you talk about a reduction print, when you talk about mirroring the image, and some people just get it right away, and that's really cool for some folks. And then uh, for some folks, uh, it takes a little time to kind of get the process down. And either way, you can end up with someone who just loves the medium. And I think that's uh, really neat about block printing. Absolutely. I think we all do process it very differently. Some people can understand where it's going just from hearing about it. Hopefully some of my listeners would fall into that category. Otherwise, I don't know why you're listening to an arts podcast, but good for you anyways. Make sure you leave a rating and review. Um, and some people need that hands-on experience. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with learning from a mistake, as long as you learn from it, right? However you learn from it, because you can always make another block, you know? It's never gonna be perfect from the start, but just doing it is really critical to to getting on that path of success. I feel like that's the recurring theme of this season is people are just giving that advice to just try it, just do it, see what's working, reflect, revise, and improve in the next in the next iteration. I, I guess to that end, another big piece of advice I'd have regarding block printing and, and printmaking overall is just to, to go with it. And we talk about happy little mistakes. I don't think any medium is more appropriate for that than, than printmaking. You may get an effect that you had not intended and it turns out really cool. Don't go for perfection. To your point, try it out, see how it works. Maybe you'll like it. And if you don't, you maybe learn something and, and you can go back and try another one. Yeah, I, I always tell my students those minor imperfections in a print are part of the charm of handmade work. You know, that's in a lot of ways what we're looking for. That's what makes it endearing as compared to something that came from like an inkjet printer. Now, before I let you go, because I do love printmaking so much and I'm doing it in my classroom all the time, like I said, this week I am printing like 500 t-shirts with all of my students. Um, I'm screen printing. When I had Melissa on, she told me about the glitter that I need to get to go along with my um, glow-in-the-dark fabricings. What kinds of toys do you know about that I need to know about? Um, and don't tell me it's the gel plates because I got that. <laughs> well, on the, on the block printing side, the other ink that I didn't mention previously was our fabric block printing ink, which as the name connotes, allows you to print on all types of fabric. And one of the things that people love most about it is the fact that you can print on fabric, you let it dry, and you don't need to heat set it, which is a really cool time saver as well. So. Just another way, another medium to print on all types of fabric, which of course is super popular these days. So then if I'm not heat setting it, like, do I need to let it cure? Like, I feel like with most fabric inks, if you don't heat set it, it's got to cure for like a week, right? Is this the same kind of curing time? 
The curing time will it'll always vary by your environment. It'll most likely be dry to the touch overnight. We do recommend to be safe, not to put it through the wash for a full week, but after that, you're, you're good to go. It'll be permanent and put it through the wash as much as you like. And I can use it just like any other block print. Like it's gonna have the same kind of tack. I can just use a, a normal brayer, roll it over my block and stamp it onto the fabric. Absolutely. Very similar properties to our regular block printing ink. Great tack, same process, put it on fabric instead of paper. Although it does work well on, on paper as well. So I, I got to stop doing these episodes because every time I talk to, to somebody, I'm just, I'm just like, okay, there goes my budget. I'm going to be ordering some more of these things. But I'm sure my students appreciate that you're mentioning it. And I, if nothing else, appreciate that you're taking the time to share your insights and tell me some stuff I didn't know about the materials and help me discover new materials to try out. So thank you once again, David Valier from Speedball Art Products. ArtSmart is produced, written, recorded, mixed, and edited by me, Kyle Wood. The background music comes from Less FM, Coma Media, and Music Unlimited. And last but not least, a big thank you to my guest this week, David Valiers from Speedball Art Products. ArtSmart is an Airwave Media podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. If you'd like to learn more, check out my other podcast, Who Arted, or go to the website artsmartpodcast.com for more free resources.